first Sunday of Advent, full of not only waiting, but longings. One of the things as we move into this new series that I want us to be thinking about is what the scripture teaches us about the longings in our hearts and to cause us to think about what are the longings in the hearts of those around us, uh, our neighbors, those uh, both amongst the church and those beyond? Before we go further, let's pray. Father, you have made everything that is triune God, creator. We worship you. We ask you to open our eyes anew to your wonders and by your word to help us sense the longings and leanings of our own hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Longings hopefully have to do with reality. One of the unique things about believers I uh, don't know if you thought about it this way, but in our day, there's much to push us to think about it. We believe in reality. There are a lot of people that don't have a clue what that word's supposed to mean, uh, and people are being brought into confusion about that. So I want us to look this morning at reality and the longings that we have for life to fit together, and we're going to look uh, initially at Zechariah, one of the priests in the time of the birth of Jesus and his wife Elizabeth, their roots, the reality that they knew and their finding rest uh, in the Lord. Uh, follow along if you have your scripture text with you. Luke chapter 1, uh, first verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced uh, in years. Zechariah, in the eighth group of of priests, there were 24 groups of the Levitic priests, and each of them in this time had uh, the privilege of ministering two times for a week each a year. So you didn't get a lot of time around the temple. Elizabeth, the daughter of Aaron, righteous before God, walking blamelessly. When the scripture uses that kind of language, uh, walking blamelessly, righteous. Uh, we see that language in the Psalms. Uh, if we know the scripture, we know that it's not saying that the individuals being referred to were sinless. When you put the scriptures together, nobody is sinless other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But there are those whose pattern of life uh, is righteous. It's, they're known for being not in some smug way, but being righteous and, and walking with consistency uh, as those who follow, uh, as people of the covenant. Those are their roots. 
but it doesn't give them necessarily uh, every abundance that they want uh, or even the ability to fulfill the common collective cultural responsibilities. Uh, I use those words because I think when we with 21st century ears uh, hear that uh, they had no child and that they were barren, we tend to think in our more individualistic culture's way. And that's still a big deal. And for those who long for children, uh, they above all know how big a deal it is. But in this cultural setting, uh, it was part of the cultural expectation and responsibility and in some ways need to have the families continue because of the way the culture operated and the way uh, that the family, the extended family, was the social service system. Uh, so there are a lot of different emotions and burdens and longings that are tied uh, to this with Zechariah and Elizabeth that go even beyond what we most talk about in our own day. They had roots, they had godly habits, uh, but they had personal and community longings that caused them aches that made a part of their lives not seem to fit together. But they not only had those roots, uh, in this text, God gives them sort of a new take on reality, new insight. Uh, Luke 1, picking up in verse 8. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That's a really big deal. There were thousands of priests. There were 24 divisions. And if you have learned in the past and remember, uh, the temple itself had outer courts, but then it had a holy place where the lampstand, uh, the showbread, the incense was burnt uh, to go along with the sacrifices. And then there was the holy of holies that only one priest, the high priest, one day a year, Yom Kippur, went into. And if you remember, he had a rope tied to his leg in case he had a heart attack while he was inside because they had to get his body out and nobody else was allowed to go into that holy of holies. But even the holy place, um, some priests served a lifetime and never entered. So into the inner sanctum of the temple, Zechariah has this incredible privilege and, and opportunity. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people who were there at the temple were praying outside the temple uh, in the courtyards at the hour of incense, uh, praises to God going up. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. Uh, he'd not been in there before and would never go in there again, but he knew this didn't happen every time. He'd watched a lot of his brother priests go in and burn the incense but something unusual was going on. And Zechariah was uh, troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him as uh, it should. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit 
even from his mother's womb. This is not the Nazarite vow that you can read about in Scripture where the cutting, uh, not cutting of the hair is involved, but this is a, a sign that something to be special about this baby, this son, John, that they are to bear. He's going to be different. He's going to be great before the Lord. And he will turn, verse 16, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Second time we've heard those words this morning, isn't it? The Advent candle, the text of the prophecy, the hearts of the fathers uh, to the children, the children to the fathers. a deeper take on the realities that they knew something about, honored in his priesthood, but confronted by God in a special way, chosen by Lot, amazed with the angel of the Lord, telling them that one of their longings uh, had been prepared more than one because something special is going to happen amongst God's people. And as those who were faithful and righteous, Elizabeth and Zechariah were those who prayed for fulfillment in Israel for God to answer his promises but they had also cried out for a child. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? He wants to believe the angel, but uh, there's some doubt. Uh, How how can I know that this is is going to happen? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Uh, My mind thinks immediately of Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah laughing when the angels of God told Abraham that they were going to have a child. Foreshadowing, that was, of this special one who would come from God, John the Baptist. And the angel answered him, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I'm not just any angel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, to bring this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. There's some discipline here for his not trusting as a man who wanted to be one who trusts. Uh, uh, His words uh, we uh, read a week or so ago from uh, Ecclesiastes of Let your words uh, be few in the presence of God. Uh, Zechariah should have memorized that verse and and remembered it. I need to remember it. You need to remember it. But God does something special for him, something special for his family, something special for the fellow priests and the people, and silences Zechariah for a time. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He was in there longer than the priests usually were. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home uh, after these days. Uh, And by the way, uh, the priests ended that part of the worship service uh, with the ironic blessing. He couldn't give it. Uh, He he was trying to use sign language of some kind to say that I I can't complete my duties. And he goes to his home, and Elizabeth, his wife, conceives this promise. 
And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. They needed, in new ways as do we, uh, to learn to find their rest in the Lord himself, their rest for the hopes and the dreams, the things that uh, uh, we've talked about in the service already of longing for God to fulfill his promises, to have the Prince of Peace bring peace, the longings for a child for them. And in verse 39, we're going to look at a couple of these later sections in the chapter very briefly. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth are related. John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins as they're born. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Gabriel had promised that Elizabeth's child would be full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. And here we see an expression of that reality that affected both John and affected Elizabeth. And we see this relationship between John, who would be the pointer, the one who prepares the way for the one who comes in the name of the Lord himself. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah are obedient. And they all wondered, the people. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. 
because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Not all of our longings are fulfilled in our time frame. And we know that in a world of rebellion, uh, having kids uh, doesn't answer our every need, does it? Doesn't make everything simple. And as I was thinking about the longings uh, that uh, most of us are given for children, and if God gives us children, the ways that those longings are fulfilled, but the way that that complicates our life. Uh, Can you imagine Though the giving of John to Zechariah and Elizabeth was a great comfort. Because he was someone special to the Lord, it brought special challenges, didn't it? And they had to deal with the death of their son because of his prophetic role. They dealt with grief even as they saw longings answered. The blessings of God, the Spirit of God being poured out, uh, bring wonders and ultimately, finally, in the return of Christ, will bring the peace in fullness. But it's not always that way, is it? Uh, As I was thinking about this text, it popped into my head early this morning, hadn't thought about it for years. We had a student at MIT in our campus ministry that came to Christ and really began to grow and his faith was so excited about the Lord Jesus Uh, He went home for the first holiday and told his parents that he had become a Christian. His mom's response was, what? Why did you do that? Why couldn't you have done something normal like get on drugs? What, What is this following Jesus thing? There's both a disturbance and a blessing in the gifts of God's answered prayers. And in our second point, from Zechariah's day to ours, uh, I wanted to remind you of a few things and then tell you a true story, read you some words from Randy Newman uh, as we'll close a little later. But I want to remind you of some things uh, Because our world's different, isn't it, than Zechariah and Elizabeth's, and particularly the culture within the people of Israel called out of Egypt. Uh, Jacob blessing his sons with blessings. We read those texts, and here we see Zechariah's prophecy of the blessing and calling of his son, John. But one of the things I want to tell you about the transition and what we've seen over the centuries since uh, uh, is somebody's always trying to wash your brain. Have you figured that out? We use the word brainwashing. Uh, I just turned the phrase. Uh, uh, There are people around you that are always trying to brainwash you. It it happens every day. I said it uh, a different way a week or two ago that uh, uh, we're being catechized, whether we know it or not, in the world. And, And that's always true. Another, a more polite way of saying it is that all speech is rhetorical. All sweet speech is persuasive. When we speak, we're not only trying to make sense of our world, but we're trying to get others to see the world the way that we 
it would take me too long to add up all the years of my education. Uh, you know, I had the normal 12 and, and then about 9 or 10 of graduate school, if I, if I count them up, uh, uh, a decade and a half or so of, of graduate teaching full or part-time. And I'm still not quite so sure if that's because uh, I'm really smart or I'm really slow to learn. Uh, but one thing I know is that the more I study, the more I know Steve was saying this about his prep for uh, his ordina ordination exams next year, uh, that the more you study, the more you realize you're excited uh, about learning. But a lot of generations uh, have taught us a lot of assumptions that can feed our longings, can feed our hopes, or feed our despair. And that's going on every week in the United States of America. A lot of generations have been taught that education is part of an endless path of progress. The Industrial Revolution technology have fed this myth. Uh, I remember uh, thinking about it uh, consciously for one of the first times when uh, I was in junior high school and the General Electric super-sized tractor trailer uh, pulled up out in front of our junior high with the logo painted down the side, progress is our most important product. Well, maybe. Certainly a lot of wonderful things we give thanks for in technology and science, things that we have learned. I'm not uh, saying those thing neg things negatively, but a part of the myth, for Western culture at least, has been that as humans developed our skills in scientific experiments and rational logic, that we could get away from subjectivity and that we could deal only with real reality, with facts. In case nobody said it to you lately, that's not true. Uh, that hasn't worked. It never will work. Uh, there are wonderful things we're thankful for. Uh, I ran across a, a statement that uh, I hadn't seen for a few decades. Uh, Karl Popper, a few of you may remember that name, born 1902, died in 94. Uh, an Australian-British philosopher, academic, social commentator, and, and worldwide known as one of the 20th century's uh, most influential philosophers of science. I mean, his name would have been taught in every major institution, his works taught places like MIT. Uh, brilliant, brilliant man. Here's something that, uh, that he wrote uh, a few decades back. The danger to progress in science is much increased if the theory in question obtains something like a monopoly. But there is an even greater danger. A theory, even a scientific theory, may become an intellectual fashion, a substitute for religion, an entrenched ideology. Don't mishear me. So thankful for science. Loved the seven years, six and a half that I spent at MIT in ministry. So much to be thankful for. But the reality is that so much of what people call science today is philosophy of science. And Karl Popper would say very bad philosophy of science and not very logical. One of the things that people in authority rarely teach us is that those with knowledge and power can have multiple motives for shaping the things they allow us to hear the way they do. Uh, occasionally somebody uh, leaks that that's uh, not always true and, and honest. Uh, some of you may, uh, most, most of you have heard of uh, 
Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, uh, not as many are familiar with his equally famous brother, Sir Julian Huxley, who died uh, at the end of the last century. Uh, uh, Oxford trained, Oxford professor, taught other places, botanist, biologist, evolutionist. Uh, Sir Julian was very open about the fact that he adopted Darwinism. And by the way, uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, unless you read a lot of books, is that the ideas that Darwin wrote in his famous book uh, uh, were being published by other people for quite a few years and discussed and in many universities. It's not like whoo, a light went on, all of a sudden we had this new theory. And Sir Julian uh, made it clear that he adopted Darwinism not because he was convinced of the science or of the logic, but because it so well served his behavioral desires of sleeping around outside of marriage. He was not only uh, a brilliant scientist, he was an honest man. That he saw the philosophy had great opportunity for the kind of world that he wanted to live in and that he wanted his children and his grandchildren to be able to live in. I'm not making light of him, I'm just reminding us that many motives are behind what is published and proclaimed as science or history. Uh, we could go back a lot into intellectual and rhetorical history, but I simply want to remind you that much of what most of us have been taught about the enlightenment and progress has been distorted and often deliberately so. And it just doesn't get talked about unless you read uh, the right books. Uh, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, even some of our Reformation leaders did some dumb things at times. Uh, but the reality is the Enlightenment wasn't this intellectually honest movement of progress. Uh, it was shaped by people who had a social and political agenda. And so a lot of what we call scholarship and have been taught in broad stroke simply isn't so, and a lot of people know that it isn't so. Uh, you may have noticed on the outline that on section two, <coughs> I noted a Washington Post 2015 article that summarized some important Pew Foundation research, and uh, this is uh, a teaching from God's Word, so I don't want to go into great depth here, but I just want to tell you that one of the myths that a lot of us have been taught, uh, I'd like to talk to some of you that are 30 and down to find out if you're still being taught it in uh, the same way. It's certainly out there in the press, is that the world, and especially the Western world, is becoming less religious. Uh, the Pew Foundation, in the widest study with the widest database that has ever been had, makes it absolutely clear that that's untrue. And the best sociologists know it. Uh, there's been a decline in religious attendance uh, in some circles of American culture, uh, but with that dip, all of the data uh, says the 21st century is going to be re more religious than the 20th. I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing because we're talking about all kinds of religion. And Christianity and Islam are growing and thriving around uh, the world. Uh, the myth that the educated in the West uh, would do away with religion and whichever one of the Beatles uh, who said that Christianity would be forgotten uh, They've all been off track. I've included this middle point as a bridge between the longings of Zechariah and Elizabeth because I want to remind you of several things uh, before we look at uh, one story to bring things to an end. Uh, I want you to understand that um, in the midst of this crazy mixed up culture, uh, understand that all viewpoints and outlooks are faith-based. 
wish I had time to go into it, but uh, one of the worst mistakes uh, that has been made uh, was whoever came up with the idea of designating certain ministries and social projects as faith-based projects. I, I understand the good intent of that, uh, but it basically gave away the playing field to those that want to describe a world without God. Because every organization and ideology is faith-based. The question is, what are they trusting? Whose ideas have they made God's ideas in their mind? Every viewpoint in ideology is faith-based. People choose their outlooks and worldviews based on a variety of factors and contexts. Reason, emotion, uh, culture, subculture, family current crises, needs, and opportunities, but everybody's trying to see what we can learn from the present and the past and put it together, and thankfully God's in control of all that, not our elite culture. And, and I read probably almost as many non-Christian books as Christians. I'm not talking about putting you know, our heads uh, uh, you know, in a bucket somewhere and not paying attention, because G God is bigger than all of this stuff. But uh, one of the wonderful things that C.S. Lewis discovered, uh, which is what led him to the Lord, was uh, realizing that if you buy into materialism, that there's nothing beyond uh, this material creation. Oops, tipped there I went, and I used the word creation. Or this material universe. Oh, wait a minute. Can't use the word universe either. Why? Because the universe says uni. It assumes by faith that there's some kind of unity in something that fits together. And C.S. Lewis was brought to despair as the most reluctant convert in the British Isles because he realized if all of his existence was nothing but a bunch of molecules that by accident bumped into one another in the right way, then nothing about his life or him was meaningful or about you. And that it's absolutely irrational to pretend that that's not the case if you follow the logic of materialism. That, that's the reality that everybody tries to hide from. And uh, Lewis describes so well what he called chronological snobbery. Get rid of that myth. The idea that if it's newer, it must be better. Uh, the Third Reich was newer than the Second Reich and the First Reich. Uh, was it better? The phrases that describe the bitter fruit are that we become intellectual and historical orphans. We have no parentage or past uh, that, that we dare embrace with confidence. And so all I'm trying to say in the second point, and I'm done with it, is don't fall into the trap of our day of people saying, well, it's nice to read about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but uh, we live in a world that knows better than, than that kind of stuff and, and angels and all of that. No, we don't. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of very good logical reason for believing that an angel really appeared to Zechariah and all the other things that the New Testament teaches. Uh, third section. Randy Newman wrote a book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago um, about unusual conversions. And in a section in that book where he talks about Betsy, uh, he mentions Mark 4 where the kingdom of God is described as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. Uh, 
because it's God's work. And J.I. Packer keenly observed, the sovereignty of God and grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise the world has ever seen, Packer wrote. Uh, because Jesus said the new birth is like the wind. Uh, when God sends it, uh, we don't always understand all of the reasons that right then the Spirit falls. So here's, here's Randy Newman, and with this uh, story, which will take us just a few minutes, uh, I want to bring this all together. Randy says, uh, perhaps another story might illustrate the point of the, the Spirit being like the wind. Uh, he had uh, gathered together in uh, a research study uh, people who could tell him how they became Christians. He used a lot of people that he knew to find the 50 that he ended up interviewing. And he says, my interview with Betsy uh, might have warranted the title, Every Parent's Worst Nightmare. Within the first 10 minutes of our conversation, I heard about lots of drugs. Quote, weed, LSD, you know, stuff like that. Lots of alcohol, lots of sex, and three weekends in a row that all involved police. And all this occurred before she turned 17. The first of the three weekends resulted in a speeding ticket. On the second weekend, she was arrested for shoplifting and went to jail. The third weekend's reckless driving and numerous other illegal activities brought her before a judge. Amazingly, quote, he let me go. He thought I looked like a pretty good kid. But all this made Betsy wonder if she might lose her scholarship to Harvard, which she had just gotten, where she was about to begin her freshman year just four months after that fateful trio of weekends. Quote, when I asked people an open-ended question like, tell me how you became a Christian, it was instructive to see how they began. Betsy started with, all right, my family was like Christian-ish, but we stopped going to church when I was in fourth grade. And then in middle school, I decided it, Christianity, was stupid. And I didn't believe it, didn't believe in it. And one of the reasons is because my parents got divorced when I was in sixth grade. For the next 15 minutes, she wove together two recurring themes, intellectual study about whether Christianity was true and sexual promiscuity to an alarming level. She kept going back and forth between the two without making any logical connections. One minute it was, for some reason, I just started thinking about religion again, and I kind of just got more mad at Christianity for being a lie that people believed. The next minute it was, it wasn't one guy in the picture, it was tons of guys in the picture and absolutely partying a ton. After the third weekend of arrest, she felt like, quote, God was trying to get my attention. I was reading books like The Case for Christ and was reading the author's entire bibliography and read all the things he referenced. The more I researched, the more I was convinced that I was wrong. However, during that same time, I just kind of said to myself, okay, I'm going to try to be a better person now. I'm going to try to stop drinking and not hook up with as many people and, you know, try to be nicer. But she couldn't do it. Then one day, while smoking a cigarette in her backyard, my mom wouldn't let me smoke in the house, she said. Her next-door neighbor came out and invited to her, her to a Bible study. At this point, our conversation went something like this. Randy, wait, 
how did she invite you to a Bible study? Betsy. She said, would you like to come to a Bible study? She added a facial expression that seemed to say, well, duh. Randy, but those weren't the first words she said, right? Didn't she start with, hi, how are you? Isn't this a nice day? Uh, how's your cigarette? <laughs> Betsy, no. Would you like to come to a Bible study? Were her first words. It was totally random. Randy, okay, but you already knew her, right? You had some kind of relationship. Betsy, not really. I mean, I saw her before, but we hardly ever talked. Maybe I said hello three times in the last six years. Randy, okay, was she around your same age, 17? Betsy, oh, no, she was way older. She was 26, totally unrelatable. <laughs> and Randy adds, and all of the other women in the Bible study were much older. Randy, so what did you say when this old lady invited you to a Bible study? <laughs> Betsy, I said, I would love to come to a Bible study. Randy, wait, did you really say you'd love to? Did you use that word love? Betsy, yeah. Randy, why? Betsy, because I had been reading the Bible for like a year and a half at that point. And all the guys I was hooking up with were a bunch of jerks. So I figured a Bible study might help. <laughs> a Bible study did indeed help. She became a Christian that summer and went off to college intent to leave her old self behind. She found a campus Christian fellowship and began attending meetings and Bible studies right away. Randy says, do you see why I think Betsy's story illustrates the supernatural dynamic of conversion and the hidden wind-like work of God to draw people to himself? From all outward appearances, Betsy seemed happy with her party lifestyle. Her, neighbors, her neighbor could have felt intimidated to invite such a young lost soul to her old lady Bible study. On the surface, people may look uninterested, hardened, self-satisfied, or irredeemable. Through the convicting, enlightening, and softening work of the Holy Spirit, together with the two-edged sword of God's word, the impossible becomes reality. Longings. Betsy had them, but probably even her parents uh, thought they were hidden and didn't know all the reading she was doing and the things that she was thinking about. We do a lot to try to hide from our longings, to hide from the God who created us with longings for something real. The Gospel of Mark begins a lot differently than uh, the long chapter that we read a good bit of in, in Luke. In the first 11 verses of Mark, we're not going to read it, just listen. In the first 11 verses, this is, what, this is what happens. John the Baptist proclaims, prepare the way of the Lord, baptizes Jesus with water, and says Jesus will baptize with the Spirit of God. And the heavens, not the Jordan River or the Exodus waters, are parted. And God's voice comes through the parted heavens and says, this is my beloved Son. 
And the Spirit of God came down, not like the floodwaters that killed the Egyptians, but like a dove. Like the dove that came to Betsy in the midst of all of her sin that was looking for how to put life together and have it make sense. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. But God uses what we reap to point us to our longings and to point us to the fact that the cross on which Jesus died, taking the wrath of God that you and I deserve, that we might trust in him and find him our righteousness and acceptance and be adopted into his family. That all comes from sometimes the worst experiences that we get led through. There is great hope for the work of the church in our culture. If you want the culture to get back together the way it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, good luck. I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I don't think it's going to happen very fast. But if you want to see a church full of people that put some of us oldies to shame with their excitement about loving and trusting Jesus. And maybe invite somebody to a Bible study or to church or out to lunch. We might all be surprised. We might have some new stories to share. Father, thank you for Betsy. Thank you for the work of the Spirit of God. Thank you, you have not left us alone. And the world can never really run away from you. We pray praising Jesus' name. Amen. All of our longings point to this Jesus. Let's stand and cry out to